0: you're listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah Golseth. we are digging into some great church history today and a wonderful expert to help us with that we'll do that in just a moment one of the commemorations of the church taking place this week. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu.
1: Live Uncommon.
0: Joining us today, the Rev. Dr. Joel Ilowski is Professor of Historical Theology, Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Programs, and Dean of Advanced Studies at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and one of our go-to experts when uh, talking about commemorations of the church and digging into great church history. Dr. Ilowski, thanks for being our guest.
1: Well, my pleasure.
0: Thanks. So to this week, we have a commemoration coming up. We have St. Michael and all angels. We're going to visit that topic tomorrow. But later this week, coming up on Thursday, is Jerome, or St. Jerome, mm-hmm. translator of Holy Scriptures. Who is this Jerome, translator of Holy Scriptures, Dr.
1: Olowski? Yeah, well, I like your how you introduced him. I think... uh uh, Gerald was one of those people that some people think they know a lot about, but he you know, has quite an interesting life. I mean, he was he the fourth century, uh, church father. I uh, mean, we do call him a church father, he's one of the doctors of the church, so he was considered a teacher for all time in the, in the church. So he was, uh, was born in, the uh, well, it's debatable whether well, it was 371 or 347. The scholars like to debate that, but uh, probably would have come from a central part of, uh, well, central part of Europe. So what we call, uh, don't make sure back then, I was in a temple called Striden. So, uh, you know, Jerome is probably primarily known for his uh, translation of the Bible, the translation of the Bible into what we call today the Vulgate, or, which is the Latin Bible. And we call it the Vulgate because it was the language of the people. So uh, it's kind of similar to like what Luther did in the 16th century in translating the Bible into German, I suppose, well, in some ways. A pretty significant figure in
0: our in our church history. But what are some some other things about his his early life, or just his
1: his name? If you if you Google him, you may find him under a different name. Yeah, that's right. I, so church fathers had all always had quite elaborate names that we had to shorten, of course. And I, but, so with Jerome, for instance, his name would be Theodius Heromit Sophronius. So we we'll get the Jerome from the second part, the Heromit. So that would be kind of the Anglicizing of the Latin, I suppose. And he, he grew up in a good family, a, a Christian family, wealthy in a family that they could send him away for an education. So they had actually sent him to Rome, where he, he studied at the age of twelve, and he went through the classical education. He learned grammar, which I wish they would teach more in our schools today. Frankly, <laughs> rhetoric, philosophy. He knew Latin, and Greek, and later on, knew Hebrew. So he was what we know as a trilingual scholar. So he, he at least had three languages under his belt, and uh, spent a lot of time with the land literature in particular, and um, actually amassed quite a collection of books. He, that's why he should be the patron saint of a seminarian, because he loved to collect books. You might even uh, call him a biblioholic. Uh, that's somebody who had books like me. I admit, no, on, Melody that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, melody. Uh, he did not love books, but he was one of those guys who really loved to read the classics. And he not only read the classics in the Latin literature, but then also later on in the, the Christian literature and he was such a, a good scholar in school that people thought he was probably studying law, but he ended up, I think he spent about six or seven years in Rome this education there. So it was a pretty good education. And interestingly enough, even though he was brought up by Christian parents, he wasn't baptized until he was 20 years old. Oh, so, and he was baptized by the bishop there in the period. So. I think I've talked to you before about this, that they, they delayed their baptisms because they kind of thought that after baptism, if you committed sin, you were putting your salvation in jeopardy, if they were capital sins, these kind of things. So, but it was really when you, for him, it was at 20 years where he felt comfortable for that. So, that's quite a of education there. But then he decided to take a gap year of about 20 years <laughs> and uh, traveled around the world, basically. He uh, spent some time in the Syrian desert in Chancelchus, and he went up to Trier, which is where... Athanasius had been exiled on his first exile. He went to Rome again. He went to Alexandria. I mean, a bunch of places for the next 20 years. And I, I think it was during his time in True where he got interested in monasticism. You know, a lot of these fourth century church fathers were very concerned about how you live out your Christian life. And he wasn't the enamored of being monk. And so he wanted to, frankly, dedicate his life to that kind of, uh, you know, ability to just live and focus on God all the time. Uh, So we call that kind of asceticism. So he he lived with the community of Aquilaia where he could kind of present some of that. Um, And he did the same thing in Anion too. And I guess in I mentioned the Syrian desert. That was probably where he had one of his, well, I mean, he was so much into the asceticism, so much into that kind of depriving his body and Uh, all these kind of things that he actually got so sick he almost died and he even had a a dream that where where jesus appears to him and says you've been spending all this time with all these philosophers and pagan writers and you put in your faith in jeopardy even you're not really a christian it's what he yes the message he got out of that dream and so as a result he vowed never to again to read or possess pagan literature but frankly when you read his writing that he knew quite a few of them anyway and didn't hadn't quite left them out so we're talking about somebody who was fairly, really very committed to uh, his Christian life, even to the point of pretty much giving up everything to uh, focus on that. Okay. And so he's, there's more I could say, but he, he did end up uh, getting ordained as a presbyter, as a priest, so he, but he didn't want that to take away from his study. And when he spent that time in the desert, he brought his library with him. He ended up moving ultimately to Bethlehem. And so if you ever make a trip to the Holy Land. When you go to Bethlehem, you don't just look at the place where Jesus was born, as important as it is. But I, I had to make sure when I was there that I saw the cave where he did a lot of his work. And he actually had his library there, and he even had a had a, a student who could write down a bunch of his stuff, too. So we're talking about somebody who was very dedicated to his, his life with Christ, but also very much a scholar, too, in that regard. <clears throat> so his formation was, was I,
0: I find that very interesting. What was it about, what was significant about Jerome that the church now continues to commemorate him on
1: September 3rd? Well, I, I suppose I would to pick one thing, it really is his translation of the scriptures. and with Jerome, with all his, all his background in rhetoric and his love for languages that he had, I would say that the church remembers him today as a, as a teacher of the church because of, of the legacy that he left um, with his translation, of okay, now. It's interesting that at the time, the church didn't like the Vulgate as much as they did later on. There was actually kind of some opposition to this idea that you would go back to the Hebraic Veritas, the, the Hebrew truth. They, they, and of I, course, I, as he did that, he, I guess what he was looking at, he, why did he even decide to translate the Bible in the first place anyway? That's one of the questions I always wonder about, and i I think part of it had to do with the fact that the Latin translations that they had at the time, what we call the old Latin, they had those texts that experienced some corruptions in transmission. where he, as he read through them, he kind of thought this needed some, uh, how should we say, updating revision. And so. He had some support from the Bishop of Rome named Damasus. Whether Damasus commissioned him to do this or not is another question, but he decided to correct some of the, the, the texts of the four Gospels. And that's really where he started out, to kind of make sure that the four Gospels. So really we had an accurate translation. And so he did some of his work in Rome, but he did the majority of it, I think, in, we'd say probably in Bethlehem, where he had uh, access to the library of Origen, Origen of Alexandria, who had spent some time in, in, um, uh, Palestine, so uh, in Caesarea in particular, so he could look at Origen's Bible um that origin had several what's called a hexapla, that had kind of six parallel versions of the Bible of uh, the three versions of the Septuagint, uh, Semmaus Aquila, and uh, Theodosian, and then of the actual Septuagint, and he had that in the Hebrew there too, and he had uh, kind of the Hebrew phonetically spelled out so that he could uh, kind of compare these different versions so he could. He's kind of our first text critic, if you will, after, uh, I should say, after Origin. So then Jerome could consult this and kind of get a more accurate version of the Bible, shall we say. So he did very much in the, like, in the 16th century, they went back to the sources. Uh, Jerome did that, too, so that he could have kind of a very accurate translation, as he saw it. But I mentioned that he also kind of experienced some opposition, and uh, some of that came from even Augustine and others, who thought that if you went back to the Hebrew, you were kind of being closer to, you know, Judaism and the Jewish kind of approach to the Bible of the Old Testament. And um, many of the church fathers at that time were kind of more trained in the uh, Septuagint version, and even the theological kind of uh, Gemma, shall we say, came from there. So there was some uh, resistance to to Jerome uh, at the beginning. But, and and there's also a question whether he actually was able to translate the whole Bible into, uh, from the Hebrew and the Greek into uh, the Latin. He probably did most of it, but then he had some like a follower, I guess his name was Rufinus, not Rufinus of Aquileia, but was able to produce the Bible and ultimately the Catholic Church used them for, think about it, almost a thousand years. So that was the authoritative text uh, that they had. And the translation, it's, you would we'll say, is interpretation. translatio is interpretatio. So he probably founded the foundation, I suppose, for much of the Catholic theology that then continued up to, let's uh, say, the 20th century. I feel like
0: maybe we're earning some seminary credit today by yes. doing this. Yeah. I think so. Learning so much church history. It was so much detail. Oh, this it. is that great. Great. It's fantastic. I'm learning so much. I love it. <laughs> as long as I don't have to write the I mean, paper. <laughs> Pop
1: a, quiz. I, I love the thing that he said to you. I'd like to say to the Hebrew students here at the seminary, when he talked about learning Hebrew, he strove to pronounce kissing breath demanding words you know because when you speak hebrew it's kind of like you got something in your throat
0: (laughs) our our guest today the reverend dr joel ilowski we're learning about jerome translator of the holy scriptures we'll learn more in just a moment right here on the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah gulfat welcome back to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golza we're learning about jerome translator of holy scriptures commemorated by the church on september 30th we're talking with the reverend dr joel ilowski professor of historical theology at concordia seminary in st louis and you shared with us just a wonderful history of jerome at his formation his childhood his education and then more about his work in translating the scriptures. Yeah, I wish we could just take so many notes, but it's a good thing this is this will be recorded so that we can go back and listen to this more and more. And and and, and I don't know, Sarah, are you going to write a paper on this when we're done?
1: I might, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor.
0: <laughs> so we we've learned a little bit about his work in translation. Um. What really led up to him wanting to translate the scriptures? Do we know much about what why it was important to him to, to translate the scriptures?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think he's as the Vatican color to watch. And by the way, this was a time when translation was uh, becoming important in the life of the church because the the West Western Church really didn't have a lot of the resources that the Eastern Church was creating, shall we say, because uh, the Western Church was the only knew Latin, and hardly any of them knew that much Greek. I mean, Augustine got to a little bit of Greek. I'd, I, Well, he knew enough to read some Septuagint stuff, but a lot of these guys didn't know much of the Greek, and so it took scholars like Jerome, and I suppose Raphinus of Aquilae would be another. These guys who wanted to make some of those treasures of the Eastern Church, shall we say. And when I say Eastern Church, I really mean the Greek-speaking church. He wanted to make those available to people in the West, like in Rome and North Africa and in places like that. So I think that was probably one of the reasons is that when Jerome was, for instance, reading and translating these texts from Origin that I mentioned, he had Origen text that he used, but he also realized that Origen was one of the key, trans- key um, interpreters of the Bible. And so he was actually a translating a bunch of origin and as he did this i think what he realized is that if he was looking at those old latin like all those old latin texts we actually kind of in textual criticism we grouped them together as the old latin we call it the beatus latina he realized that there were some discrepancies that he that can that happened over time that they weren't some of the copyists but they weren't as careful as they should have been i suppose and so i think his interaction with these these greek texts that he had from origin and others and his his Greek teacher Didymus, and the, the fact that he even he even um, had a, one of his patrons paid for a, a Hebrew tutor so that he could learn Hebrew too. He realized that it's it's important for the church to have have a, a a good text that they can rely on, especially as these debates over Arianism and other things came into play, which would have been in the latter part of the. They still were arguing about this in the latter part of the fourth century, although the Council of Constantinople pretty much tried to put all that to bed in 381. So. I think yeah, those, those two things. I suppose if there was a third, it was just his love of the scriptures, that and especially the psalm. That he he felt that that was rather one of those texts that really needed to have a have a good rhythm to it, and he could provide that with his wonderful gift of languages. So I think it was that desire to feed the faith, shall we say, too, that's in there.
0: What was the the state of the the church at this time? The culture around him. And we talk a lot about martyrs and how much opposition
1: they had and, and dying for the faith. But what was what was it like for Jerome in the just living in, in the the culture in the church of that day? No, that's a great question. And uh, the martyrdom pretty much had died down, so we say, by the beginning of the 4th century. So you had the Diocletian persecution ending in 311. But then we still had persecutions in Persia and the Eastern part somewhat. But for the most part, you don't hear as much about that, so then in place of martyrdom, these monks were kind of the new spiritual athletes, shall we say, and so that monasticism was part of it. But that monasticism also developed because of this time in the church is kind of now considered the jet. I mean, and that's even the term they use in Latin to describe the church is a illicit religion. It's a legitimate religion. It's not illegal anymore. And people started even seeing the church as a way to kind of, how should we say, advance their careers, because a lot of these bishops could they could avoid military service, and they could also get a break in their taxes and these things. So, uh, I mean, I hate to be crass about this, but some people started looking at the church as, as more of a way to get ahead. And, and in that world, he mis-started, um, shall we say, not that it wasn't there previously, it was, but I mean, it, it's starting to become more blatant and seeing a lot of wealth in the church, too. And, and Jerome was one of the guys, especially during his time in Rome, where he he criticized the lifestyle of Roman Christians. And in particular, the clergy, he kind of thought that, that there were a lot of temptations, shall we say, um, in the church uh, towards um, looking at it as if not so much the deep spiritual side of things, but was becoming very much in the world and of the world. And so... And and again, there were a lot of faithful bishops during the time, too. Don't get me wrong. And many of them spoke out against this. is another example of somebody who spoke truth to power. But uh, I suppose Jerome it bothered him so much that, that he actually, that's part of the reason he went out into the desert, that he he felt that he, need, he needed to get away from the distractions. And by the way, he wasn't totally successful in that either. Even when you try to uh, hide away from the world, the world has a way of fighting. Yeah. And that's it, even for him in the cave there. And later at Bethlehem. But so he's looking at a, at a church that he, he wants to kind of call back a bit to kind of the basics of the Christian faith and life, I suppose. So I don't know, does that help a little bit? I feel like it's not so much a uh, martyrdom, but it's a new type of martyrdom of the soul that he decided to pursue. Why
0: was his work valuable? How did the Lord use his work for the church? And, and how did it impact the church?
1: Well, and this is where I think our Lutheran tradition very much can appreciate Jerome for the fact that he understood that you need to go back to the sources, that you need to go back to and, and uh, go back to the the text of Scripture and all in all in all its purity where you can. And I think what we see for him with him is somebody, one well, who was a very zealous uh, defender of the faith, too, in, in the aspect of of looking at that translation work, but also even in his kind of other theological works, I suppose, where but Jerome teaches us really, uh, and he, he kind of perpetuated kind of the, the commentary tradition, too, that even in reading Scripture, he recognized a lot of people need help in in understanding the meaning of Scripture. And, of course, he relied a lot on the commentaries of origin and others uh, as he did this. But uh, I suppose his work is valuable because it, it helped us recognize that when the Church reads the Scriptures, it reads it in a community, you know, and and that community, uh, it isn't just pooled ignorance, shall we say? But and I'm not just advocating for seminary professors here, by the way. I'm I'm simply saying that what Jerome understood is that when you're if you're going to study the scriptures, you need to be um, serious about it and work with other like minds and also some teachers of the church who perhaps can kind of bring you into a a realization and maybe a deeper understanding of the faith. And Jerome does that a fair bit. He's he's also a, one thing I wouldn't say, and to call about these guys as saints, he didn't always act saintly. And I, I hate to, I just bring this up to say that there were there were some disagreements he had with others in the church that perhaps he didn't always resolve as well as he could have. And he was even known as kind of a curmudgeon by some of the other uh, people who had to deal with him at times. And there's a sad event where he had a disagreement with one of his best friends, Rafinas. You know, they were both translators. They both been in the Monastic community together, but they had a disagreement over how to translate origin. And we call this the originistic controversy that has implications for the church, even a couple centuries, well, a century and a half later, as to how should we look at the legacy of this guy named origin and his teaching in the church. So there is that kind of history for him, too. And the church has to recognize that, that he, you know, that he had some difficulties, too, at times, I suppose. So these church fathers, I, I look at them as teachers of the church. I don't. I don't look them, at them as inspired like I do the scriptures. So that's what I want to kind of keep in mind as we as we look and celebrate these wonderful gifts that the church had and that was given to us. And that we do believe the Holy Spirit worked through them. Where can we see? I don't know the, the fingerprints of Jerome in our in our Lutheran uh, circles, in our doctrine, and in, in the writings that we have. Are, are there any things that were inspired or influenced by him today that we have? Yeah, that's a great question. We Of course, first of all, as I say with Luther's um, going back to the sources and then just translating the Bible, you kind of you definitely see Jerome there. You can go to the Lutheran confessions where they will, you know, talk about some of Jerome's theology that is in there. I mean, an interesting example where we parted ways with Jerome. Two was Luther, again, he loved the church fathers, but he also was critical of them at times. Often. Is in Luther's uh, 1525 bondage of the will in his debate with Erasmus, where Matt Erasmus would bring up Origen and Jerome, and Luther would kind of have some disagreement on that because Jerome and uh, Origen seemed to give quite a bit of more role to the will, of course, Luther was willing to do in, in terms of conversion and things like that. And so I I suppose so. There's uh, there's pluses and minuses uh, in our Lutheran tradition as we look to Jerome and rejoice in the fact of that discovery and and re-entry back into going going to the Hebrew, for instance. So if you look at our seminary curriculum, we have our students um they they need to go back to the Hebrew as well as the the Greek and the New Testament, and we do have them go back to that Hebraic veritas, if you will. And so I think that it's quite a large stamp, shall we say, that Jerome has on our Lutheran tradition to this day that. That we, like him, feel we need to go back to the original languages to really, and it isn't because your English Bible will adequate or anything. It's just sometimes when you have questions over interpretation, you recognize that reading those original languages will give you some insights that you might not have gotten otherwise. So that's the positive side of it. As I said, with Mithra and his discussion with Erasmus the there, there was actually some critique there that he went after with Jerome, and he also critiqued Jerome over his. His over-asceticism, over, over asceticism, shall we say, the fact that Jerome, with his emphasis on living the monastic life, as we know, Luther kind of rebelled against that monastic life and felt that it often obscured the gospel. And so that was where Luther kind of parted ways with Jerome, shall we say, too. Hey, we're just about out of time. Any
0: good reading or resources you'd like to point us to that would help us learn more about Jerome, translator of scriptures?
1: Uh, you know, I've got um, this Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity that I helped with editing with the English edition. They have a great article on Jerome there that's nice and concise for those who don't want to read a hundred pages or a thousand pages. But there's also this good series. It's called the Early Church Fathers, and it's published by two publishers at Routledge. So they've got a volume on Jerome by Stefan Rebenic where he gives a nice introduction and he also gives some some new translations of some of Jerome's works. So that. That, I think, would also be helpful. And there's one other one that I have. It's kind of the standard work. It's titled Jerome by uh, J.N.P. Kelly, and that's published by Duckworth. That's kind of the classic text that most people would start off with, and that was published well, back in the 1970s. So I'd say the Revovich material probably would be pretty helpful that way. So, And then there, you can even go online, I suppose, and find some of its text. If you go to the early Christian text site, the only problem is those texts or translations are kind of from the 19th century and a little more difficult to, to read. But maybe that would at least give you, you know, some ideas.
0: Mm, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Commemorating
0: Jerome, translator of Holy Scriptures this week. The Rev. Dr. Joel Ilowski is our guest today. He's professor of historical theology, coordinator of international seminary exchange programs and dean of advanced studies at Concordia Seminary. Dr. Ilowski, thanks so much for this wonderful history lesson on Jerome today. Well, a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Goldman.